Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 48 of the show. It's another good episode for you this week. We uh, had a major championship awarded uh, this past weekend in the PGA Tour, and uh, we have also crowned an NBA champion, finally. So, uh, plenty of news to get to there. Of course, we'll do a standings update, the first one post-All-Star break. And uh, plenty of news to get into uh, and around the island. So we'll start off in the PGA Tour. And this past weekend's tournament was the Open Championship. And that was at the Royal St. George's Golf Club in Sandwich, England. It was a par 70. Distance was 7,189 yards. This was the fourth and final major championship of the season. And uh, it was a good one, uh, for sure. I I talked last week uh, about how much I just love the Open Championship. Uh, It's my favorite golf tournament of the year. I love link-style golf. There's something special about waking up super early uh, to watch these guys tee it off uh, from the UK. You know, you can stay up late, or you can get up early, or you can do both. Uh, It's a pretty cool cool event to, to watch, and of course... Um, last year we didn't have this tournament. It was, uh, canceled due to the pandemic. So, uh, this year, uh, it was the first time in two years we've seen the open championship and out of the 149 opens, this was the 15th that was held at the Royal St. George's golf club. And if you watched, uh, this tournament, you just, you saw just how, uh, rumpled and undulating the fairways and greens were, uh, there was no flat part. Uh, on the course at all, on the fairways or on the greens. The greens were just absolutely insane. Uh, When they showed it up close, you could see just how sloped those things were, Uh, deep pot bunkers. But the one thing that was constant all weekend was the weather. The weather absolutely cooperated. Uh, It was phenomenal. You know, I think it was mid, mid to high 70s and sunny for a vast majority of the uh, tournament. I think we had a little cloud cover in Thursday and Friday's round, but for the most part, all week by Sunday there was a heat advisory for England. So uh, the weather was certainly not an issue this weekend, and it really helped contribute to, or the low scores can be attributed to the weather that we saw. Uh, wind was a factor on certain few holes, but that's just a product of the course being on the ocean. But you know, there was a few cool storylines coming into this thing. Um, you know, John Rahm was looking to win the Open after just winning the U.S. Open last month. First time, well, it's been 21 years since somebody's won both of those in the same year. Uh, Louis Oosthuizen, he had come into this thing uh, with back-to-back second-place finishes in the last two majors, the U.S. Open and the PGA Championship. And then, of course, we had a lot of withdrawals this week due to covid 
or COVID contacts, etc. And it actually carried into the tournament because after the first round, Will Zalatoris had to withdraw with a back injury. It was He sustained it on the uh, 15th hole on Thursday's opening round. He was hitting out of the heavy rough. He said after he shot it, he had a, a tingling sensation down his left leg, and he didn't want to risk any further injury, so he withdrew. Uh, he's an exciting young golfer, so that was kind of a disappointment. But uh, the other story, uh, after 36 holes, Louis Oosthuizen, he set the Open Championship record for lowest round, lowest 36-hole score uh, in tournament history with a 129. Just absolutely on fire. Uh, More on him in a minute. But in the end, your winner of the Open Championship and the Claret Jug was Colin Morikawa. He won with a score of 15 under par, which uh, for this tournament is just absolutely insane. This was Morikawa's second career major championship in just his eighth career major start which is the fastest player to win two majors since 1934. The previous fastest was Jordan Spieth, who won two majors in his first 10 starts. So he beat that by two. Now, one of the reasons that he won was because he went bogey-free in his last 31 holes, which in the Open Championship is is insane. Uh, Hard to do would be the understatement. doesn't even do it justice. But to go 31 holes... uh, 31 holes straight without a bogey to end, uh, you know, it's just, that's almost two full rounds without a bogey. So just incredible play by Morikawa. He had a a two-shot victory. He actually opened with a three under 67, which was good, just a few shots off the lead, but then came out on Friday with a six under 64, which really made you look at him. Uh, He was on top of the leaderboard for most of Friday until Louis Oosthuizen got done with his round. But uh, he was in second place after Friday's second round, and you knew he was going to be a factor with the way he was playing. Uh, shot a two under 68 on Saturday and then closed with a four under 66. Um, bogey free, of course, on Sunday to win the Claret Jug in his first attempt at it. So uh, just amazing performance by Morikawa, and the kid's special. He's only 24 years old. Second place was Jordan Spieth with a score of 13 under par, which was two shots back of Morikawa. And Spieth was lights out for a vast majority of the weekend with the exception of the 17th and 18th hole in Saturday's third round where he missed a pair of easy putts. Uh, But he opened with a 65. He was in second uh, after Friday or Thursday's opening round, followed that up with a three under 67 to be in, in top part of the leaderboard. He only shot one under 69 on Saturday, which was a tad bit disappointing. But then he came out on Sunday, shot a four under 66, which is what Morikawa shot. The problem was that Spieth started the round two shots back of Morikawa. So um, he didn't make up any ground. And he had the holes to do it, too. He just, again, he couple holes in that third round cost him, which he actually said in an interview that uh, post-tournament that uh, his the last few holes on the third round are what really cost him. But outside of that, he was flawless. Another great finish in a major for Spieth, who just continues to prove that he is back to being one of the best golfers in the world. There was a two-way tie for third place at 11 under par, which was two shots back of Spieth four shots back of Morikawa, and that was John Rahm and Louis Oosthuizen. Now, with Rahm, 
another major championship and another top 10 finish for Rom, who finished inside the top 10 in all four majors this year, inside the top five in three of them, um, winning the U.S. Open. But uh, he's just really been playing outstanding these last few months. Uh, Rom's week was really summed up in his second and his fourth rounds because he actually shot a one over 71 on Thursday, but then came back and fired a six under 64 on Friday to uh, get his name at near the top of the leaderboard, sitting at five under heading into the weekend. Then on Saturday, he shot two under 68, which, which kept him in contention. I think he was, uh, six shots back or five shots back heading into, uh, Sunday's round shot a four under 66 on Sunday, just like Spieth and Morikawa, but he was still far enough back that um, uh, he didn't catch either one of them, but he still captured a top three finish. So uh, another solid performance by Rahm in a major, which seems to be uh, about as sure of a thing as as you can imagine. Now, Louis Oosthuizen also was at third place with 11 under, and he came into this thing, as I mentioned a minute ago, with back-to-back second-place finishes in majors, the U.S. Open and the PGA Championship. And he came out flying. He shot a 6-under 64 and a 5-under 65 in his first two rounds to set the 36-hole low score with a 129. Saturday, he only shot 1-under 69, uh, but he was still your leader after each of the first three rounds. But then Sunday hit, and the pressure of winning his second major uh, got to him because he it just proved to be too much for him, unfortunately. He played in that final pairing on Sunday alongside Colin Morikawa, and it looked like they were in different weight classes, honestly. Uh, poor Louie. Man, it was so nice to see him just pure swing every drive uh, the first three rounds, and then uh, Sunday he just couldn't. He couldn't get it together at all, and all he could do was watch Morikawa just make shot after shot. So, tough round for Louie on Sunday. Ended up with a 1-over-71, which could have been a lot worse. Uh, If you watched on Sunday in that final round, it looked like he was headed for quite the disaster, but to finish at 1-over was probably a a win in his book. But uh, another top-five finish for Oosthuizen in a major, just... Uh, inside the top three and three of the four majors. Just amazing stretch here for Louis. Uh, fifth place was Dylan Fratelli, nine under par. And uh, Fratelli was, uh, he had come into this thing, he'd made about 50% of the cuts that he uh, has has played in this year. So he hasn't been consistent at all, but he was near the top of the leaderboard all weekend. And he definitely outperformed his expectations he was not really on anybody's radar coming into this week. He opened with a 4-under 66, followed that up with a 3-under 67, shot even par 70 on Saturday, and then closed with a 2-under 68. So another solid round for, or a solid tournament for Dylan Fratelli, who, like Jordan Spieth, is a former Texas Longhorn. But we'll check out Rick's picks to click from the Open Championship. The first one I gave you was Jordan Spieth. And we just talked about him. Um, I mentioned that he had won this Open Championship back in 2017 and that he just seems to do well on the Lynx courses. He always plays well at the Open. Don't know what it is, but uh, I liked for him to click. And we just talked about him. He finished 
Solo second at 13 under. Just another amazing tournament. He is officially back, and he's up to number 14 in the world rankings. My second pick to click was Brooks Kepka. Uh, Brooks in a major. That's why I picked him, and again, he proved why he's, um, you know, one of the best in the world right now. He finished at eight under, which was tied for sixth. He was only at five under heading into the weekend uh, after shooting a 69 and a 66, but then. He just completely collapsed on Saturday with a two over 72. That really took him out of contention. Um, Now, he tried his damnedest to get back into it on Sunday with a terrific bogey-free five under 65. Uh, He was feeling it on Sunday. It probably could have been a 63. Uh, He barely missed a couple of putts, uh, birdie putts, that is, on some holes that he could have easily shot a 63, and that would have... Uh, that would have got him in a little closer, but certainly not to catch Morikawa. But this was Brooks Kepka's 12th top 10 finish in his last 16 majors, which is just simply outrageous. Um, so he definitely clicked. So I clicked on Spieth and I clicked on Kepka. My final pick to click was John Rahm. And this guy has been the hottest golfer in the world over the last month and a half or two. It won a U.S. Open, would have won the Memorial uh, if not for his positive COVID test, dude's just on top of the on top of the golf world right now with his performance. He finished, of course, like we talked about, T three eleven under par. Uh, he's up to number one in the world rankings with that performance. But yeah, I'm sad the Open is over. Uh, can't wait for it. Next year's the 150th Open Championship, and that'll be at St Andrews Golf Course in Scotland. So definitely looking forward to that. But this weekend's tournament is the 3M Open, which is at TPC Twin Cities in Blaine, Minnesota. It's a par 71, distance is 7,431 yards. This thing uh, didn't have fans uh, in attendance last year. Uh, It will be back at full capacity this year, and there is a new large spectator hub that has been built around the par 317th, so expect that hole to be a little rowdy this weekend. And for a small purse tournament, the week following a major championship, this field is actually pretty decent. Uh, you got Dustin Johnson, Patrick Reed, Sergio Garcia, Matt Wolf, Ricky Fowler, just to name a few of the big dogs that'll be out there. Um, so a pretty decent tournament, like I said, for a, a week following a major. So let's check out Rick's picks to click for the 3M Open. Uh, the first one I'm going to give you is Mito Pereira. He is ranked number 136th in the world, which is the lowest ranked golfer that I have ever featured on my picks to click. This guy has only played in three career PGA Tour events, and all three of them have been the last three weeks. So why the hell is he my pick to click? Well, prior to his last three weeks, he was on the Corn Ferry Tour, and he won his last two events on the Corn Ferry Tour before getting bumped up to the PGA Tour. His first event in the PGA was the Rocket Mortgage Classic a few weeks ago. Well, he missed the cut in that. But the next week, he finished T-34 in the John Deere Classic and then T-5 last week at the Barbasol Championship, which was the other PGA event that took place the same weekend of the Open. So he basically, to recap, his last two Corn Ferry starts were both wins. He missed the cut then went T34 and T5 
after that. So he seems to be getting better and more comfortable on the PGA Tour. He's actually a solid golfer. Uh, he's gaining more confidence, and uh, this is his final tune-up before he represents his home country of Chile in the Olympics. So um, I don't really have, uh, I mean, uh, a whole lot of knowledge on Mito Pereira, but he, he's confident, and uh, I like for him to at least uh, give me a top 25 finish. So we'll check that out. But my second pick to click is Louis Oosthuizen. Why not, right? Louis is up to number nine in the world. How can you not like Louis after another near major win? Uh, he's made the cut in all 13 events that he started this year. He's got three second-place finishes, two of which in a major, and then that T3 that he just finished in last week's Open. So he still leads the tour in strokes gained putting and in conversion percentage inside 10 feet. So his putter's been lights out. He's third on tour in scoring. And uh, I, he's never played this course before, TPC Twin Cities. Never played here. So this is new for Louie. But I like for him to carry the momentum in from last week and uh, certainly finish inside the top 25. My final pick to click is Dustin Johnson. He's number two in the world, which makes him the highest-ranked golfer in the field. He finished T8 last week at the Open after shooting a absolutely atrocious 3-over-73 in Sunday's final round at Royal St. George's. So still managed to T8. He hasn't played in a whole lot of tournaments lately. Um, in his last four tournaments, he has all top 25 finishes, and two of those were majors, the U.S. Open and, of course, the Open this past week. So he's four straight top 25 finishes. He's second on the tour in adjusted scoring. Uh, and simply put, he's the best player in the field, and uh, I think he's going to make it five consecutive top 25 finishes and get me a click with a decent chance for an outright win. Um, he's, like I said, he's the best player in a field of players that's uh, got some good ones, but certainly not enough uh, to keep DJ out of the top 25. But, uh, yeah, we'll have to check that tournament out this weekend. Like I said, it's a small purse tournament, but TPC Twin Cities is a beautiful course. Uh, Matt Wolf was your winner back in 2019 for his first career PGA Tour win. And uh, he's, he returns back this week after not uh, playing in the Open last week. But, yeah, well, uh, I don't know how much of this tournament I'll check out. Uh, I'll probably catch some of it uh, on Saturday, but uh, maybe a little bit on Sunday. But, um, yeah, it'll still be – I think it'll be an interesting tournament. There's enough big-name players to make it worthwhile. So we'll, uh, we'll check in uh, on next episode and see how those picks turned out. But we'll move over to the NBA, and we'll cover the rest of the NBA Finals. We have officially crowned an NBA champion this past week. And when we left off last week's episode, we had covered the first four games of the series. The series was tied two games apiece. Game five was back in Phoenix. And this was a super close game. It was better than game four. And all the big dogs came out to eat in this one here in game five. The highlight of the game was late in the fourth quarter, when Drew Holiday stole the ball from Devin Booker uh, in his defensive zone, basically defensive half of the court, took it down the floor, threw up an alley-oop to Giannis, who just slammed it home. And the Bucks ended up winning the game 123-119. to 
It was their third straight win. They took a 3-2 series lead, put the Suns on the brink. Now, Giannis had 32 points. Chris Middleton had 29. Drew Holiday had 27 points, 13 assists. So all three of the Bucks' big stars showed up. And then for the Suns, Devin Booker dropped 40 points. Chris Paul had uh, Chris Paul had 21 points, 11 assists. So the series shifted back to Milwaukee for game six, and this was another good game. Uh, you knew Phoenix was going to come out and play. This was their do-or-die game. But Phoenix just got dominated in the first quarter. They ended up trailing by 13 points after the first quarter. But then they got... The ball rolling, so to speak, in the second quarter. They had actually had a five-point lead into halftime, so they had a 18-point swing there in the second quarter. So uh, the Bucks trailed at halftime, but then came out, and uh, Giannis just went berserk. He had a monster game in Game 6. He went for 50 points, 14 rebounds, and five huge blocks, two or three of which came in the last six minutes of the fourth quarter. The dude was just on a roll. Uh, he carried the Bucks to a 105-98 win to clinch the series and give Milwaukee their first NBA championship since 1971. Now, if you remember, I had picked the Phoenix Suns to win this series in six games. Uh, I did correctly pick the number of games. However, it was the Milwaukee Bucks who are your NBA champions in this 2020-2021 season. Now, Giannis, I mentioned he had 50 points, and the Bucks scored 105 in Game 6. That is almost 50% of the Bucks' points. Uh, that is ridiculous. Uh, he was obviously the NBA Finals MVP, and that goes along with his two MVP, uh, NBA MVP trophies that he's got sitting in his house. This dude has uh, officially cemented himself as uh, a top three player in the NBA uh, call it what you want. I'm not a huge fan of his, you know, he, he can't really shoot the basketball uh, outside of the uh, the paint area, but he is super effective on both ends of the floor. Uh, he can rebound. I, I do believe that Giannis is a top three player in the league. But uh, something that I, a statistic that I came across uh, kind of ties this into the uh, NFL in a way, which for you Cowboys fans like myself, you'll be happy to hear this. The last time that the Milwaukee Bucks were in the NBA Finals was 1971. Okay, I mentioned that just a second ago. Well, the Dallas Cowboys would actually go on to win the Super Bowl that year that the Bucks won the championship. And the last time that the Phoenix Suns were in the NBA Finals was 1993, which again... The Dallas Cowboys would go on to win the Super Bowl that year. So, I'm not saying that the Dallas Cowboys are going to win a Super Bowl this year, but if history repeats itself, as it has been known to do before, the Dallas Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl this year. So, that's kind of exciting. Um, but, yeah, that wraps up the NBA season. Uh, it was a good one. You know, there was a lot of injuries. That was kind of the main topic throughout the year. But uh, everything, you know, there was a few postponements for COVID. Uh, games got made up, but they played 72 games. So the, uh, the NBA played uh, only 10 fewer games than a regular full slate, whereas the NHL uh, only played 56 regular season games. But nonetheless, uh, we had two new teams in the finals, the Suns and the Bucks. It was good to see, very refreshing to not see, 
you know, the same old crew of LeBron James, Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, those guys uh, duking it out in the NBA Finals. It was pretty refreshing to see um, the, the youth of the Phoenix Suns and the skill of the Milwaukee Bucks kind of go toe-to-toe. So, well, uh, that's going to wrap up the NBA coverage for probably a while until we get to the draft here, I guess, in a little while. But, uh, yeah, it was a, a pretty successful NBA season, and uh, we'll look forward to see what, uh, what next season brings. But we'll zip over to Major League Baseball. We'll do a standings update. Uh, we are about a week and a half removed from the All-Star break, and we went over the, the All-Star game recap and home run derby recap on last episode. So we'll pick this one up. The first game after the All-Star break was scheduled to be the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox, but that was postponed due to a mini COVID outbreak in the Yankees organization. There were six players that tested positive, so they postponed. I think that game started on uh, Thursday, I believe, but they postponed it till Friday And uh, they ended up playing that whole series over the course of the rest of the weekend. So not really sure what the delay was in postponing it one day, but uh, nonetheless, they got those games in. Now, last Saturday, the uh, San Diego Padres were in Washington, D.C., to play the Nationals. And as the game was about two-thirds of the way over, there was a shooting that was reported outside of Nationals Park which, of course, caused a stoppage of the of the baseball game. And uh, when everything was... It was pretty scary because there were fans kind of running out of various exits. Uh, they said that the situation was happening outside the stadium and to stay in the stadium. Um, others hunkered down in various spots of the stadium. I think some fans actually ended up hiding in um, the dugouts for the teams as they went back to the locker rooms. But pretty scary scene. Uh, all in all, when it was said and done, there were two people that were shot outside the stadium during the game, one of which was a uh, stadium employee of Nationals Park. So I don't really have the full story on that, but uh, that was kind of scary to see. They resumed the game on Monday and finished that up before they started their their second um, second game that day. But we'll start off with a standings update here post-All-Star break in the NL East. The New York Mets still hold the lead. Uh, they're 51 and 43. They got a four-game lead on the Philadelphia Phillies at 48 and 48. The Atlanta Braves are 47 and 49. Uh, just a game back of Philly, five games back of the Mets. The Washington Nationals, they are 45 and 51. They've only won three times in their last 10 games. However, a couple of noteworthy things with the Nationals. Pitcher John Lester. He, at 37 years old, became the oldest pitcher to hit a home run since 2016 when Bartolo Colon, who was 42 years old at the time, hit a home run. So Lester hit a home run this week. But the real story for the Nationals this past week was Juan Soto. The dude was in the home run derby. He knocked out Shohei Otani and came out, and he had like five home runs in his first four games. Uh, after the All-Star break. The dude was just mashing. So a lot of people say that the Home Run Derby messes your swing up. I think it certainly helped Juan Soto get back on track. So good news for the Nationals there with him going. Last place in the NL East is the Miami Marlins, 41-57. and uh, That seems to be where they're going to be the rest of the season. 
The National League Central has gotten a little closer. The Milwaukee Brewers are still up top at 57 and 41. They have a six and a half game lead over the Cincinnati Reds, who are 50 and 47. St. Louis Cardinals are 49 and 49, eight games back of the Brewers. And then the Chicago Cubs are 48 and 50. Uh, they are nine games back of the Brewers. I just don't see them. I think they're going to be sellers at the dead trade deadline coming up. I would expect Craig Kimbrell, their closer, to get traded. Anthony Rizzo is probably a good trade candidate. Chris Bryant uh, would not be surprised if he's traded. So I think the Cubs are going to have a fire sale here at the trade deadline, but uh, that's just my guess. The Pittsburgh Pirates are last in the NL Central, 37-60. and 60. Um National League West, San Francisco Giants are still rolling strong. They are 61 and 36. They have a three-game lead on the LA Dodgers, who, as of this recording, have lost three games in a row. They're 59 and 40. They lost an ugly one last night. They had bases loaded in the bottom of the ninth with no outs, and they couldn't get any run to tie it. So tough sledding there for the Dodgers last night. But the uh, San Diego Padres are uh, a game and a half back of the Dodgers, four and a half back of the Giants at 58 and 42. They've won three in a row currently. The Colorado Rockies are 43 and 54. I would look for Trevor Story to get traded sometime in the next couple of weeks before the trade deadline. And then uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks, 30 and 69, firmly in last place in the entire. Uh, Major League Baseball. However, they are about to have some company, and we'll get into that here in a second. Over in the uh, American League, oh, I meant to I meant to mention with the San Diego Padres uh, in the NL West. There, Fernando Tatis Jr. Of course, he's an All Star, one of the best young players in the game, if not the best. Uh, he became the fastest player in Major League Baseball history this past week to reach 50 home runs and 50 stolen bases, and he did that in just 223 games, which is very quick. Obviously the fastest in, in league history, but uh, you watch the kid. He's got it all going for him. He is he is a special talent. Now we'll zip back over to the American League East. The Boston Red Sox up top at 60-38. and 38. Uh, they got a game, one game lead on the Tampa Bay Rays, fifty nine and thirty nine. They made a big trade acquisition. We'll go over that here and around the island. Uh, both of those teams, the Red Sox and the Rays, are on four game winning streaks. The Yankees are in third at fifty and forty six. They're nine games back of Boston, eight games back of Tampa. So they are at this point. It looks like the Yankees are probably going to be more in contention for a wild card spot. Same goes with the Toronto Blue Jays, who are at 48 and 45. They're a half game back of the Yankees, nine and a half back of the Red Sox. So um, I would look for the Yankees and Blue Jays to compete for one of those wild card spots. The Baltimore Orioles, they are in last place. They're 32 and 64. They're only a couple games better than the Arizona Diamondbacks for worst team in the entire league. In the American League Central, Chicago White Sox are... Uh, probably they are running away with this division uh, to a certain extent. They're fifty-eight and thirty-nine. They have a nine-game lead on the Cleveland Indians at forty-eight and forty-seven. Now we'll get into some interesting news about Cleveland here and around the island. But uh, with the White Sox, uh, All-Star shortstop Tim Anderson, he had a sixteen-game hitting streak that started before the All-Star break and continued after the All-Star break. 
he had three straight games with a home run after the All-Star break, so he kind of caught fire. Third place in the AL Central is the Detroit Tigers at 47-52. and They're three games back of Cleveland, 12 games back of the White Sox. Not really a threat to make the playoffs. However, they did win seven. Uh, their first seven games after the All-Star break, they won before finally losing. So they went uh, on a little run there. The Minnesota Twins at 42-56. and 56, They are basically eliminated. Kansas City Royals are in that eliminated group as well at 40 and 55 in the uh, American League West the Houston Astros still up top that division at 59 and 39 uh, they've played some really good baseball over the last month and a half or so they have a three and a half game lead on the Oakland A's who are at 56 and 43 Seattle Mariners have been kind of hanging out in that third spot most of the year they're 52 and 46. They are three and a half games back of the A's, seven games back of the Astros, so they're still kind of in contention there. Uh, the Los Angeles Angels are 47 and 49, uh, probably too far back to make any kind of run, but Otani keeps doing his thing. And then last place in the American League West, the Texas Rangers. Uh, they're 35 and 63. My poor beloved Rangers. They have lost 10 games in a row. And the first three games after the All-Star break, they got shut out and outscored. Uh, They gave up double-digit runs to the Tigers in all of those games. Just got completely shellacked. And uh, it was just kind of, well, embarrassing is the only way really to describe it. They are playing some horrid baseball right now. Nothing seems to be going right. And uh, they are quickly joining the Diamondbacks and the Orioles as one of the worst teams in Major League Baseball. But the positive news is that with our second pick in the MLB draft, the Texas Rangers did select uh, pitcher Jack Leiter, the Vanderbilt pitcher and son of uh, all-star pitcher uh, Al Leiter. So Jack Leiter gives us some hope. He's probably going to be in the majors in about two years or so, I would assume, uh, maybe sooner. But uh, that's the only bit of uh, ray of sunshine for the Rangers at the moment is that they they were able to draft Jack Leiter. But yeah, this baseball season is moving right along. Like I said, we're a week and a half post All-Star break. Uh, Most of the teams have played somewhere in the neighborhood of about 95 games or so. So we're looking at another, you know, 70-ish games left on the schedule. So we're uh, coming up on that two-thirds mark through the, uh, the way through the season. So Uh, The trade deadline is coming up. We'll have a couple of trades to talk about here and around the island shortly. Um, So keep an eye out for those, and we'll, of course, go over all of the other trades on uh, next episode as well. But we'll move on to the National Hockey League, and uh, we don't have any games, obviously, to recap since we have already crowned a Stanley Cup champion, but we do have two drafts to go over, and that is the Seattle Kraken Expansion Draft and the... 2021 NHL Entry Draft, both of which were held this past week. And uh, both were televised on ESPN, as uh, ESPN is the new NHL affiliate for the next uh, several years. But we'll start with the Seattle Kraken Expansion Draft. And the way this worked, basically, is the exact same way that the Vegas Golden Knights were formed. And that is that the Kraken got to select one player from uh, 30 NHL teams, 
they did not get to select a player from the Vegas Golden Knights because they are the most recent expansion team, which I think is BS. But uh, they got to select one player from 30 teams, uh, the rest of the NHL, minus Vegas, that was not protected. Every team had the chance to protect seven forwards, three defensemen, and one goalie that they could not get stolen. So everybody else was fair game. So I'll just run through their list of Seattle Kraken uh, expansion draft picks by team. From the Anaheim Ducks, they took Hayden Fleury. Arizona Coyotes, Tyler Pitlick, who they've since traded. Boston Bruins, they took Jeremy Lausen. Uh, Buffalo Sabres, William Borgen. Calgary Flames, Mark Giordano, who was the captain of the Flames. Carolina Hurricanes, Morgan Geeky. Chicago Blackhawks, John Quenville. Colorado Avalanche, Junis Donskoy. Columbus Blue Jackets, Gavin Bayreuther. Dallas Stars, Jamie Alexiak. Detroit Red Wings, Dennis Chalowski. Edmonton Oilers, Adam Larson. Florida Panthers, Chris Drieger. Los Angeles Kings, Curtis McDermott. Minnesota Wild, Carson Soucy. Montreal Canadiens, Cale Fleury, who's the brother of Hayden Fleury, who they took from Anaheim. Nashville Predators, Callie Yarncroke. New Jersey Devils is Nathan Bastian. New York Islanders, Jordan Eberle. New York Rangers, Colin Blackwell. Philadelphia Flyers, Carson Twarinski. Pittsburgh Penguins, Brandon Tanev. San Jose Sharks, Alexander True. St. Louis Blues, Vince Dunn. Tampa Bay Lightning, Yanni Gord. Toronto Maple Leafs, Jared McCann, who had just gotten traded to Toronto uh, several days prior to this expansion draft. Vancouver Canucks, Cole Lind. Ottawa Senators, Joey Decord. Washington Capitals, Vitek Vanacek. And Winnipeg Jets, Mason Appleton. Now, there's a lot of younger guys that the Kraken picked uh, in the in the expansion draft. There, it's Vegas when they did their expansion draft. They took they took a lot of guys, a lot of bigger name players that had uh, bigger contracts. Whereas the Seattle Kraken took uh, smaller name players, younger players on rookie contracts and smaller contracts. And the theory is Seattle's building for three years from now. Vegas was ready to compete as soon as the draft ended, which is why they ended up making it to the Stanley Cup Finals that year. Uh, the Kraken are not making it to the Stanley Cup Finals this year with that roster, unless they sign some heavy-hitting free agents. But, yeah, I, I think Seattle Seattle's building for the next few years. And, you know, they do have a couple of big recognizable players uh, on that team. Mark Giordano, Yanni Gord, uh, Callie Yarncroke, you know, they have some guys that can that can step in and, and contribute right away, but they also have a lot of young guys too. So uh, I'm more of a fan the way that Vegas did it, just hopping right in and taking some big-name guys. But uh, I do think the Kraken will be uh, a pretty successful team here in a couple of years, especially if they can keep building, uh, which they were able to do through the NHL entry draft, which we'll talk about here. That'll lead us right into that. Uh, the NHL entry draft, there's not, you know, it's not as popular as the NFL draft or even the NBA draft, but uh, that did happen uh, the other night as well. And Seattle had the second overall pick in that draft. Of course, the NHL's draft lottery is a complete farce. I've mentioned that before. Uh, the Buffalo Sabres were absolutely horrid last year, no question about that, but 
there's no way that they should have the first pick over the Seattle Kraken, who just had to draft their team from a bunch of uh, basically players that are on other teams. So um, the Buffalo Sabres had the first overall pick in the draft. They took defenseman Owen Power from the University of Michigan. He's 6'6", 213, he's a huge kid. Great pick, great player. He'll be a rock-solid defenseman there next to Rasmus Dahlin um, in Buffalo for the next decade. Second overall pick was Matthew Beneers, who also came from the University of Michigan. He's a center. He's uh, quick. He's good. He's a really good player. Um, Power and Beneers were, of course, teammates in college at Michigan. Uh, they were pretty much selected to be or slated to be the the top two picks in the draft so no surprises there the third pick belonged to the Anaheim Ducks they took Mason McTavish he's a center played in Peterborough the uh, OHL he's the son of a uh, longtime NHLer Craig McTavish he kind of went a little higher than what he was projected but uh, that left the New Jersey Devils at number four to select Luke Hughes now Luke Hughes he's 17 years old He's been playing on the U.S. National Development Team. His two older brothers, Quinn Hughes and Jack Hughes, are both in the NHL. Quinn Hughes plays for the Vancouver Canucks, and Jack Hughes was the number one overall pick in 2019, and he plays for the New Jersey Devils. So Luke Hughes gets drafted to play with his brother. Uh, They had the camera there at the Hughes household. All three of the brothers were there. They were jumping up and down and screaming, Uh, I'm sure Quinn probably feels a little left out. He's playing way over in Vancouver, and Jack and Luke get to play together uh, in New Jersey. But cool thing for the Hughes family is that they have three kids in the show. But, uh, yeah, so Luke Hughes, he's actually committed to play college hockey at the University of Michigan. So you can count him as as the third Wolverine taken in in the top four picks. And if that wasn't bad enough, the fifth overall pick belonged to the Columbus Blue Jackets, They took center Kent Johnson, who played this past year at the University of Michigan. So, that being said, the University of Michigan becomes or became the first first NCAA program in history to have three first-round picks. And not only did they have three first-round picks, they had three top five picks. The first overall, second overall, and fifth overall pick. And if you want to add insult to injury... Luke Hughes, the fourth overall pick, is committed to play there next year when he's 18. So uh, that's technically four four Wolverines that were drafted in the top five, which is just unbelievable. Uh, a couple of other noteworthy picks. The Detroit Red Wings, they had the sixth pick. They took Simon Edmondson uh, from Sweden. He's a Swedish defenseman. And then the Red Wings traded with the Dallas Stars to get back into the first round, the 15th overall pick. They took six foot five goalie Sebastian Casa. Uh, had really good numbers. Um, let's see the uh, Dallas Stars. They moved back to Detroit. Uh, Detroit's other pick at twenty three. They took Wyatt Johnston from the Windsor Spitfires, of the OHL. Um, all in all, there were three uh, players in the first round that were picked that are sons of uh, former NHL players, and there was. At least one more in the second round when Shane Doan's kid Josh got taken by the Arizona Coyotes with the fifth pick of the second round. So a lot of former NHL players' kids are in this draft. Um, The most questionable pick belonged to the Montreal Canadiens at number 31. 
They took defenseman Logan Mayu, uh, Malu, however you say it. Basically, this kid had been accused of some kind of uh, sexual crime over in Sweden where he had sent some inappropriate pictures uh, without uh, permission. And um, he kind of got in trouble for that. And he had asked for his name to be withdrawn from the uh, list of NHL draft entries. And uh, he still ended up getting drafted in the first round. So pretty crazy turn of events. But um, yeah, so pretty exciting week in the NHL. Uh, We know what the Seattle Kraken look like. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how this season turns out. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island. And that is where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports. And this might be the very busiest Around the Island segment uh, to date. Uh, There is an absolute ton of stuff to get into from pretty much all of the major sports, including some big Olympic news. And we'll start off in the National Football League. Uh, We are within 50 days of the Dallas Cowboys taking on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to open the season on Thursday night football. Training camps are getting underway. I know the Dallas Cowboys have officially started theirs because they're um, playing in the Hall of Fame game uh, this year. And uh, so they're they're getting underway. But uh, the Los Angeles Rams, they got some horrid news this past week. Their star running back, Cam Akers, He tore his Achilles tendon while working out, and testing confirmed the injury. So Akers is going to miss the entire 2021 season, and he was poised to have a big year two, take a big step forward after he showed a lot of promise last year as a rookie, the second-round pick. And this is a huge deal in fantasy football, too. If you play fantasy football, you know just how big this impact was. Cam Akers was projected as a late-first uh, maybe an early second round pick, uh, you know, running back is, is a position of, uh, true scarcity in fantasy football and to lose a, an RB one, uh, on a workout before training camp starts is just, that's awful. But, uh, regarding the green Bay Packers, we haven't heard any news from the, uh, the Aaron Rodgers saga in a while. But this past week, the Packers announced that at some point earlier this offseason, they had offered Aaron Rodgers a two-year contract extension that would have tied him to Green Bay for five more seasons. He has three years left on his current deal. They offered him an additional two years. The contract would have made Aaron Rodgers the highest paid quarterback and player in all of the NFL, meaning that he would make more than Patrick Mahomes, $50 million a year. Aaron Rodgers declined the offer, which is proof that uh, this holdout that he's stating he's going to do is not about the money. And if that's not bad enough, wide receiver Devontae Adams has officially broken off his contract extension talks with the Packers. Uh, The Packers sent him some proposals for new contract extensions that none of those proposals made Aaron Rodgers or correction, Devontae Adams, the highest paid wide receiver uh, in the league, which we all know Devontae Adams is, if he's not the best wide receiver in the league, he's in the top two or three wide receivers in the league. So Devontae Adams pulled all negotiations, said I'm not talking about it anymore, and there's no current plans to resume talks. So uh, it is getting ugly in Green Bay right now 
Um, if you're a Packers fan, I'd be I'd be very concerned. Uh, Rodgers appears willing to sit out this entire season. Adams appears to be playing in his last season as a Packer unless he can get something going. But Green Bay is going to have to open up their wallet for that. We did have a retirement this past week in the NFL. Longtime uh, wide receiver Ted Ginn Jr. He announced his retirement from the league after 14 seasons. He was uh, he most recently played for the New Orleans Saints. He was the ninth overall pick in the 2007 draft, and in his 14-year career, he had 33 receiving touchdowns, two rushing touchdowns, and seven uh, return touchdowns. So he had a total of 42 touchdowns in his career, um, various methods. And I remember he went to Ohio State University. He was one of the more electric college football players that I remember watching uh, in high school. So uh, congrats to Ted Ginn. I know he didn't have probably the career that he wanted, but uh, he was still a dangerous weapon. But from one Saints wide receiver to another, and that's Michael Thomas. He currently is a Saints wide receiver, and it was announced this past week that he underwent some kind of ankle surgery in June and that he is likely to miss the start of the season this year, the regular season, which would be the second year in a row that he's not going to be in uniform in week one. Because if you remember last year, he was hurt. I believe it was an ankle injury uh, that kept him out of the lineup for the first couple of weeks. And uh, again, another huge fantasy football impact for you guys that play fantasy football. Uh, Michael Thomas, is he's been one of the best wide receivers in the game over the last, you know, three or four seasons. So uh, he's obviously not at that status anymore. And if he misses the first week or two again this year, uh, he's not going to be a high draft pick like he has been. But nonetheless, uh, there were a couple of big linebacker contracts that uh, are getting done. The San Francisco 49ers re-signed linebacker Fred Warner to a five-year $95 million deal that includes $40.5 million guaranteed. Puts his average annual value at around $19 million per season, which is the highest in the league for a linebacker just ahead of Seattle's Bobby Wagner. And his $40.5 million guaranteed is the second highest in guaranteed money for a linebacker behind the New York Jets' C.J. Mosley. And not to be outdone by Warner's contract, the Indianapolis Colts and Pro Bowl linebacker Darius Leonard, they are beginning trade talks on a contract extension that would pay him $19 million per season as well. Uh, nothing is official on that. They haven't announced any numbers, but I'm sure the two sides are going to agree on something soon. Uh, Leonard is in the final year of his rookie contract. He was a third-round pick. He's only set to make $3.5 million this year, 3.4 to be exact. He's already made two Pro Bowls uh, in his first uh, f three seasons, I guess. So uh, the, the dude is, uh, he, they call him the maniac, and he really is a uh, tackling machine. He deserves to be the best, the highest paid linebacker in the league uh, ahead of Fred Warner. But we'll see how that turns out. We did have a minor trade this past week as well. And that was the Chicago Bears and the Houston Texans. The Bears have traded wide receiver Anthony Miller to the Texans. Uh, now, Anthony Miller, he's a former second-round pick by the Bears just a few seasons ago. He just didn't pan out. 
He only had 49 catches last year. He never really found a role in that offense. Now, the Bears' offense has been terrible uh, the past several years with some combination of Trubisky and Foles and who knows what. But um, this year it looks to be in better shape, of course, with Justin Fields joining the mix now. But uh, Miller joins a crowded wide receiver room in Houston that uh, already has uh, Brandon Cooks, Kiki QT, uh, Nico Collins. Uh, they're, they had a draft pick, Nico Collins, this year. Uh, you know, he's he's going to be in a crowded wide receiver room. So he steps in and is probably the third or fourth wide receiver. But uh, either way, it's a change of scenery for Miller. Uh, I think both sides kind of won that deal. Now, some uh, more moves. This is a head coaching or an assistant coach that was fired, basically. Minnesota Vikings assistant coach Rick Dennison was fired this past week, or both sides mutually agreed to part ways, which is a fancy way of saying he got fired because he refused to get the COVID vaccination. He was the offensive line coach and the run game coordinator for the Vikings. Now, that's interesting because all Tier 1 staff members are required to get vaccinated. So that includes all coaches, front office executives, equipment managers, and scouts. Okay, players aren't required to get vaccinated, but they face strict protocols and are subject to fines if they are unvaccinated, if they choose not to get it. Now, the coaches have to get it, okay? They're required to get it because they can't be around the team if they're not, which makes it hard to coach if you can't be around the team. So uh, coaches, equipment managers, scouts, any of the staff that interacts with the players are required to get it. So this kind of leads me into this next topic. And the NFL announced some big news this year, this upcoming season, regarding forfeits, okay? The NFL said they sent a memo out to all the teams. They're going to be uh, adding additional incentives for players to get vaccinated, okay? The uh, memo that the league sent out outlined the incentives for teams and players to get vaccinated. So um, in addition to the unvaccinated players being subject to severe uh, mask-wearing protocols, daily testing, travel restrictions... Okay, same, same things that they dealt with last year. The unvaccinated players may also be responsible for the losses of games and paychecks, all right? You're talking money and lose, you know, losing games and money. So how that's going to work, basically the NFL said that a forfeit is going to be called in this upcoming season in all of the following circumstances. Number one, a game is postponed by requirement of government authorities or medical experts or at the discretion of the commissioner because of the ongoing health concerns of an outbreak. Number two, the league can't find a suitable date to reschedule within the 18-week framework of the regular season. Remember, it's a 17-game regular season this year, plus a bye week. And the last thing, the original postponement was caused by an outbreak among unvaccinated players of one team. So... Those are the three stipulations in which a game is going to be forfeited. So it has to be postponed because of a health issue. Can't find a makeup date. And the reason for the postponement was uh, an outbreak caused by an unvaccinated player. So if all of those situations occur, the game is going to be forfeited. 
and the losing team will be the team that is responsible for the postponement, which is huge. Uh, you could have a, an unvaccinated player cost your team a loss just simply because he got the virus and gave it to other teammates. So that's huge. That is that is a big deal. Um, that will make you think twice about getting the vaccination. At least I would think it would. Uh, I know DeAndre Hopkins, the Cardinals wide receiver, says, you can't make me get vaccinated, and I'm thinking about not playing if that's the case. You know, whatever. That's his prerogative. Um, the NFL also said that for every violation that an unvaccinated player incurs as far as uh, any protocol violation, they're subject to a $15,000 fine. So the NFL is hitting these guys in the pocketbooks for violations of protocols, and they are really incentivizing vaccination. And if you listen to me regularly, listen to this podcast, I've been a proponent of vaccination for this whole time. Uh, I have both of my shots. I've had them for uh, six months, you know. Uh, I just, I think it's it's better for everyone if you get vaccinated. Everybody that is vaccinated is, you know, is obviously more immune to it, less likely to transmit it or contract it. Um, not to say that it can't happen because it can, but again, the idea here is for the NFL is we want to keep football on the field. We want to keep players playing. So, uh, that is an interesting situation to, to watch here in the NFL over these next, uh, you know, well, really six months or so. But we'll move over to the National Hockey League. A lot of trades to go over. And we talked about the expansion draft and the entry draft, but there were a lot of trades that took place uh, before the drafts. Both of those drafts took place. Colorado Avalanche traded defenseman Ryan Graves to the New Jersey Devils uh, in exchange for a prospect and a second-round pick. Not really a big trade, but Ryan Graves was rumored originally be, originally to be uh, possibly getting taken by Seattle in the expansion draft, so Colorado just got rid of him to make sure that didn't happen. The New York Islanders traded defenseman Nick Letty to the Detroit Red Wings in exchange for forward Richard Panic, second round pick in this year's draft. So, uh, which uh, the Islanders, you know, I think that was a contract dump to get rid of Letty's contract, but a good move for the Wings. Letty's a good, solid, vet, uh, solid veteran defenseman, so he'll he'll do all right there in Detroit. There was a huge, the biggest, probably the I would say, I don't know if this is the biggest, but one of the biggest trades that went down this past week was a three way trade between the Nashville Predators the Vegas Golden Knights, and the Philadelphia Flyers. Nashville got defenseman Felipe Myers and forward Cody Glass. Vegas got forward Nolan Patrick. And the Flyers got defenseman Ryan Ellis, which is huge. I think it was a good trade for all teams. Uh, Nolan Patrick, former top pick in the draft, goes to Vegas for a change in scenery. He definitely needed that. Ryan Ellis goes from Nashville to Philly. Uh, Philly is looking to be a little bit more competitive. They were just really on the outskirts of making some noise uh, this year. Fell a little flat on that. And then Nashville gets two. Uh, Felipe Myers is a good young defenseman. And then Cody Glass as well. So, uh, But the Flyers, they did not stop there. Philadelphia went out. 
They also got defenseman Rasmus Ristolainen from Buffalo, big 6-6-6-6-7 defenseman from the Sabres in exchange for Robert Hag, first-round pick in this year's draft that just happened, and a 2023 second-round pick. So the Flyers are serious about making moves this offseason. They have added two huge defensive pieces in Ellis and Ristolainen. So they are definitely rebuilding. And again, not to be completely finished, the Philadelphia Flyers traded forward uh, Jakob Voracek to the Columbus Blue Jackets in exchange for Cam Atkinson. So Voracek is a bigger dude, good on faceoffs. He's getting exchanged for Atkinson, who's a small, speedy winger. So uh, both guys probably needed a change of scenery. So I would expect both of those players to benefit from those moves. Now, just like the Philadelphia Flyers, the Arizona Coyotes were very busy this past week. They acquired forward Andrew Ladd and a second-round pick in this weekend's draft, uh, a conditional second-round pick next year, and a conditional third-round pick in 2023 from the New York Islanders in exchange for three draft picks all in next year's 2022 draft. So Ladd, again, a good veteran forward. Should help the Coyotes. They have a good young core. Adding to that young core, the Coyotes went out and acquired defenseman Shane Gostisbehere from Philadelphia. A second round pick next year and a seventh round pick next year. All for the from the Flyers in exchange for absolutely nothing. The Flyers, yes, they literally gave the Coyotes Gostisbehere and two draft picks next year for nothing. Uh, salary dump, I think they gave the Coyotes the picks in order to keep, or in order for them to, to keep Gostisbehere's salary. But either way, just very odd to see a trade that uh, has no return. Uh, but then the Coyotes, the biggest trade that they made was with the Vancouver Canucks. Okay, The Coyotes, they traded their captain, uh, all-star defenseman Oliver ekman Larson and forward Connor Garland to the Canucks in exchange for Louis Erickson, Antoine Roussel, Jay Beagle, a first-round pick in this year's draft that was this past weekend, second-round pick in next year's draft, and a seventh-round pick in 2023. So that is a 6-for-2, basically a 3-to-1 ratio on that trade. But ekman Larson immediately steps in, gives Vancouver uh top-flight defenseman to go with the good young players that they have as well. So great trade for the Canucks, and uh, Coyotes got some draft picks out of it. Uh, my Dallas Stars, they also were on the uh, the trading uh, network there. They traded forward Jason Dickinson to the Vancouver Canucks uh, in exchange for a third-round pick in this past weekend's draft. As much as I hated to see Dickinson go, uh, he was probably going to get taken by Seattle in the expansion draft, so uh, Jim Nill decided it was better to trade him for a third-round pick instead of losing him for nothing. So it was a good trade for Dallas. Now, some other Stars news real quick. They re-signed defenseman Miro Haskin into an eight-year contract extension worth $67.6 million. It's an average annual value of $8.45 million. Great signing for the Stars. Uh, Haskin is super young. He's only 21, not even in his prime yet. He was the third overall pick in 2017. Oh, he's 22. Okay, he's 
22 years old. He's going to be He's a, one of the faces of the Stars franchise, so glad that we re-signed him. The Detroit Red Wings, they were busy this weekend. Uh, they acquired goalie Alex Nedeljkovic from the Carolina Hurricanes in exchange for goalie Jonathan Bernier and a third-round pick in this past weekend's draft. Uh, they then re-signed Nedeljkovic to a two-year, $6 million contract. Now, Nedeljkovic was in the running for the Calder Trophy this year as the league top, uh, league's top rookie, so it was a great trade for the, the Red Wings. Uh, the New York Rangers, they made a, a couple of moves, They uh, a couple of trades. They acquired Barclay Goodrow from the Tampa Bay Lightning for a seventh-round pick next year's draft. They re-signed him immediately to a six-year extension. And then the Rangers also traded Pavel Buchnevich to the St. Louis Blues in exchange for Sammy Blaze and a second-round pick next year. I would say the biggest trade that went down was between the Chicago Blackhawks and the Columbus Blue Jackets. Chicago acquired defenseman Seth Jones, another all-star, and a sixth-round pick next year in exchange for Adam Boquist, a second-round pick this year, a first-round pick next year, and they also swapped first-round picks this year, which moved Chicago to the back of the first round, very last pick, and gave the Blue Jackets the 12th overall pick. So Columbus had two top 12 picks. I think they had the fifth overall pick as well. But uh, just a huge trade. Seth Jones, he uh, then immediately signed an eight-year, $76 million contract with the Blackhawks. It's a $9.5 million average annual value. So huge, huge money, huge player, huge uh, trade. Buffalo Sabres, uh, they traded Sam Reinhart to the Florida Panthers in exchange for Frank Vetrano, prospect and a conditional first-round pick. So good good trade for, for Florida. Reinhart needed a change of scenery, former first-round pick by the Sabres. Um, Boston, the Bruins, they re-signed Taylor Hall to a four-year, $24 million contract. Uh, he was acquired at the trade deadline this past year from the Oilers or the Coyotes, rather, and uh, yeah, just a uh, good, good player, former first overall pick. He seemed to find his way there in Boston. Uh, and then last NHL news, Colorado Avalanche, they re-signed their 22-year-old defenseman, Kale McCarr, to a six-year, $54 million contract that holds an average annual value of $9 million. So huge money for these great young defensemen. Uh, I love Kale McCarr. He's one of my favorite defensemen in the league. So that uh, is a great signing there, a great re-signing by the Avs. But we'll move over to Major League Baseball. The I mentioned the Cleveland Indians. All right, They announced this past week that they have officially changed their nickname to the Cleveland Guardians. Okay, They have been the Cleveland Indians since 1915. Now, pictures of the Cleveland Guardians logo was, uh, they were released, okay? There's a couple different logos, and it's just awful. Uh, it looks like someone made it on clip art and threw it together in five minutes. Uh, the, the new C is cool. That'll go on their hats. It's more of a, more of like a diamond shape. That's kind of cool. But the word Guardians on their jerseys and the the flying C that's in a baseball. It just looks, it looks like a minor league logo. Seriously, it looks like, if you haven't seen it, go look at it. It's, it is, it is atrocious. But, uh, you know, apparently 
the word Indians is offensive to some people, even though it's very generic. It's not specific at all. So, uh, you know, this is 2021 and people are offended by just about anything. So uh, there were a couple of uh, trades that went down in baseball. The Chicago Cubs, they traded outfielder Jock Peterson to the Atlanta Braves in exchange for minor league prospect Bryce Ball. Uh, the Braves have been decimated by injuries. They lost Ronald Acuna, and uh, Jock Peterson's done pretty well for the Braves in his first uh, week on the team. The bigger trade, though, the Tampa Bay Rays. They, uh, they're trying to chase down the Boston Red Sox in the AL East, so they decided to go out and acquire designated hitter Nelson Cruz from the Minnesota Twins. It was a four-player deal, and I think that gives the Rays the edge in the AL East. With that lineup, their lineup is already ridiculous, and they add uh, Nelson Cruz to that lineup. That's going to be fantastic. And uh, In fact, Cruz hit a home run in his first game with the Rays uh, after the trade, so it was paying dividends immediately. Now, just to touch real quick, on uh, the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, the Canadian government has officially given the Blue Jays an exemption on the border restrictions that's going to allow them to play their home games in Toronto at the Rogers Centre starting on July 30th, which is uh, about a week away. And the Blue Jays have been approved for 15,000 fans in the stands starting on that July 30th date. So pretty interesting news for Toronto, they've been playing. They started their home games at the beginning of the year in Dunedin, Florida, which is their spring training site. And uh, beginning of uh, July or end of sometime towards the end of June, they moved to Buffalo, which is their AAA uh, site. So they have not been playing in Toronto uh, at all. So that'll be good for them to go back home. Uh, a couple of NBA notes. The biggest one, uh, well, move, yeah, moving over to the NBA, I should have said. A couple of NBA notes. Uh, the uh, NBA and the NBA Players Association, they've agreed to extend the playoff play-in tournament format through the 2021-2022 season. And the league's Board of Governors is going to make it official in a formal vote sometime soon. So uh, that is big news there. Uh, that was fun. I hope they keep that in place, and I really hope the NHL adopts that play-in format too because that was fun to watch. But uh, the Washington Wizards, they hired a new head coach, Wes Unsell Jr., agreed to a four-year deal. He was uh, one of the highest-regarded assistant coaches in the NBA. He most recently coached the Denver Nuggets. He was assistant coach for Denver. Uh, now, Unsell actually spent 14 years with the Washington Wizards as a scout and uh, other various assistant coaching roles before uh, making that rise up the assistant coaching ranks uh, and making it to Denver, uh, making a name for himself there, and then finally, of course, getting this Wizards job. So his career has come full circle. Uh, huge, 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 massive news out of college football uh, regarding the Big 12 and the SEC. Uh, the Houston Chronicle was the first to report this, that both the University of Texas and Oklahoma University have reached out to the SEC in an attempt to join the conference. Multiple reports since that report came out have indicated that the change is, is imminent. It will be happening in the next couple of weeks, officially, and uh, I believe the soonest that Texas and OU could move to the SEC would be the 2022 season. Uh, they're locked in this year in the Big 12, but 
after this year, the move would probably be official. Uh, that's going to put the SEC at 16 teams, which makes it uh, a super conference. So again, that announcement on the uh, official movement over there should happen in the next uh, week or two, but it does seem that Texas and Oklahoma are headed to the SEC. Now, I'm not sure how I feel about it. I'm a diehard Texas Longhorn fan, for those of you that don't know me. And um, yeah, it, uh, I'm, I'm kind of scared, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, I think Steve Sarkeesian's done a great job recruiting. I think he's got some talent coming in. And, uh, you know, I think I think we'll be okay in the Big 12 this year. Uh, I think we're going to compete for the Big 12 championship. But uh, if we have games against Alabama, Georgia, Florida, you know, LSU, Texas A&M, Oklahoma, if we're playing those guys uh, throughout the course of a season, that's going to be just rugged, man. Uh, he's gonna, They're going to have to get their act together with regards to recruiting. So I hope this helps our recruiting out to have Texas in the SEC. Maybe some more recruits will want to come to Austin to play, uh, you know, with a former SEC coach in Sarkeesian. But, uh, you know, that's a, that's a huge, huge move. Uh, you know, I, I, you got, you know, between Texas, OU, LSU, Bama, Georgia, Florida, I mean, those are five, five or six really historic programs that are just – uh, they they get nothing but the best athletes, you know, and so it's that's going to be very interesting to see. I want to see how the breakdown is between SEC East, SEC West, how they do the the subdivisions within the conference. That is going to be uh, something to watch. But keep an eye out on that for the official announcement here in the next couple of weeks. But um, some news regarding the Olympics, the. Uh, 2020 Olympics in Tokyo, Japan have officially started. Uh, the opening ceremony was this past week. Some uh, medals have already been given out. And uh, some big news from uh, USA Men's Golf. It suffered a big blow on uh, Saturday. It was announced that uh, Bryson DeChambeau tested positive for COVID in the final testing protocol before heading over to Tokyo. So he is ruled out of the Tokyo Olympics, and he has been replaced by Patrick Reed. Now, this is Patrick Reed's second Olympics, as he represented Team USA in Rio in 2016. So um, there are four USA golfers that are going to be representing our lovely country uh, in Tokyo in the golf tournament. It's uh, Colin Morikawa, Justin Thomas, Xander Shoffley, and now Patrick Reed. So uh, I certainly, the way that Morikawa has been playing, obviously fresh off of his Open Championship, Justin Thomas is as cool as a cucumber in any tournament he plays in. And then Xander Shoffley is, does really well in big moments. And um, Patrick Reed, of course, he's, he's a Masters champion. So um, I like the USA's chances to come out with at least a medal in this thing. I think it's uh, 62 golfers maybe total, uh, but the four that we got going from the U.S. are uh, are all really good golfers, and uh, I expect one of those four or two of those four to at least get a medal. So good luck to Team USA on that. I'd rather have Bryson DeChambeau out there than Patrick Reed, but uh, Reed is still uh, a good golfer. But uh, that's going to wrap up the 48th episode of the Sports Island podcast. I hope you all enjoyed that one. Um, this podcast is available 
uh, everywhere you listen to podcasts. And uh, just a quick note, um, I am going on vacation this next week out of town, and uh, so there will not probably not be an episode for about a week and a half or so, so don't don't be alarmed if you don't see one pop up next week. I will be out of town, but I'll still be keeping up with sports and uh, get, getting you all the news and info you need uh, on the next episode. So until then, stay safe, be well, and we'll catch you on Sports Island next week.